Hello, fellow crime junkies, murder freaks, crime obsessed, whatever you want to call yourselves. <laughs> I don't have a real introduction to this podcast yet. Working on it. It's a work in progress. This is only a third episode. Cut me some slack, right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, cheers to a long freaking week. It's only Wednesday, Melissa. Speaking to myself in the third person. But yes, it's only Wednesday. It has been already a long week. Lots of stuff has happened in my personal life that make me feel like it's a long week. So I'm having a beer. And I'm recording the third episode of this podcast. This However, yes, being the third episode is not part two of the Leah Roberts disappearance. Part two is coming up soon. Tale as old as crime. We'll have tons of like filler episodes, part twos, part threes, part fours. Um, because I like to just do this kind of randomly whenever I have the free time. I am a mother of two kids. I have a full-time job. Things go on in my life, so I cannot always sit down and record an episode. It does take time. This is actually, in fact, my fifth time restarting this recording because I've been interrupted so many freaking times. Anyways, moving on. This episode, we're covering the Salem Witch Trials. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) In all seriousness... This is this does fit into true crime because there these there were tons of victims, families of the victims, victims in general of the Salem witch trials. It was pretty insane. 1600s things were going on um and things moved fast. They went quick. Like it was so and people died. People were imprisoned falsely. There is a lot that happened. So before I even get into the bare bones of the story and start off with all the research I've done, my heart does go out to those affected by the Salem witch trials and their descendants and so on and so forth, because that's an insane period of time to live in, I think. Um, this isn't really covered in like history class in school. You kind of have to do your own research on it. There are tons of movies. Not all those movies are correct with what ha- took place, but the research that I got to do and the movies I've seen and the knowledge I just have of it, it was crazy. It was pretty insane. So, without further ado, Salem Witch Trials. Also, sidebar, side note, um, I do know that witch trials did take place in different areas. But the main epicenter of like all the stuff going down was Salem, Massachusetts. So... That's where I ended up with my research, and that's what we're going to go with for this podcast. Um, comments are open, always. I do have my Instagram, a Tales of this Crime podcast. All one word. So much fun to look up and tell people. So you're more than welcome to go on there and make comments under the posts relating to the podcast. I love feedback, even suggestions on what we should cover. It's a lot of fun. Also, bar sidebar. It's really weird talking to myself. I love when Tara and I were recording an episode that we could just sit and have a conversation about the case that we're talking about with just microphones attached to our shirts. But when you're by yourself, you're really by yourself. So, yeah. Anyways, moving on. From what I know, the total number of victims were 20 people. But that's not including that those those that were put in pres- prison, arrested. Um, so if you count all the other victims, you get a number around 150. 
And that's a big number when you're talking about villages back in the 1600s. And also, from what I know, a lot of those people, like I said, were innocent. So imagine sitting around waiting for a knock at your door. You're going to get arrested because you looked at the bread maker the wrong way. You looked at the lady that was peddling eggs on the street the wrong way. I don't know. Or you gave some lady a weird look in church. And now, all of a sudden, you're accused of witchcraft. So, imagine that setting as your life. <laughs> okay. So, Salem, Massachusetts, 1693. Um, historians do believe that the accused were victims of mob mentality, mass hysteria, and scapegoating. Which is, again, like I was saying, imagine that. Imagine giving a look to somebody and they're like, witchcraft. I grew a mole because you looked at me weird. It happened. It happened. Uh, we'll get deeper into those interesting stories as we go on. Let's start at the beginning. January 1692, a group of girls set off a series of events that if hindsight were a thing, these events probably could have been prevented. <laughs> they were behaving odd. They were throwing themselves to the ground during church, saying that they saw things that no one else could see, screaming about burning skin when they were touched by something religious, possibly like a Bible. They even started to convulse. So they're throwing themselves to the ground, all dramatic, eyes rolling in the back of the head, screaming about burning skin and pointing fingers. They were examined by a doctor and it was ruled that they were bewitched. But honestly, think about it. Like something could have possibly been causing them to do those things. And then the conclusion at the time was bewitchment there are myths that we talk about a little bit later on who knows you tell me um the girls were examined and they accused the local slave tatuba and two other women for bewitching them when tatuba was arrested she confesses and states she is a witch and that there are other witches in salem Tatuba worked for Samuel Paris at the time of the trials. Several books mention that she's black or mixed race, but her court documents list her as Indian woman servant. She was bought in Barbados by Samuel Paris and brought to the Salem village in November 1689 because Paris was appointed the new minister of the village. Hmm. During Tatuba's trial, she mentions having conversations with evil dogs and pigs who ordered her to do their evil bidding. She also mentions personally witnessing Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne transform into strange winged creatures. Tatuba made so many crazy confessions, and the reasons for these confessions could include the fact that she was beaten or forced to confess by Paris himself. Um, she also really didn't have anything to lose, so by confessing, she thought it might spare her and, at the most, a lifetime of imprisonment. I did read that she went to trial and was spared the gallows and did end up being a prisoner throughout the witch trials. At the end, she tried to retract her confession, was then ruled as ignoramus, air quotes, ignoramus, air quotes, yes. It did say that. It didn't, like, I'm adding the air quotes verbally, but it air quoted the word ignoramus in her court documents and was found not guilty due to lack of evidence. After that, she remained in the Boston jail because Paris refused to pay her jail fees. That may have been because he was pissed that she retracted her confession. It may have been because she was a reminder of the Salem witch trials. Either way, she was then bought by an unknown person 
for the cost of her jail's fees, as was her husband. And after that, there's no more information regarding her life after the trials. So we go back to the beginning of the trials. Tatuba made her confession and crazy statements during the trials, and this set off all the colonists and the hysteria spread like wildfire. Then opportunists came out of the woodwork. The Putnam family took a huge part in it, using the witch hunt to take revenge on rival neighbors and other colonists that they didn't approve of. Puritans grew very hostile towards colonists that didn't allow, didn't follow strict religious and societal rules, resulting in many of the accused witches being very outspoken women. Quakers, slaves, colonists with criminal backgrounds and prior rich witchcraft accusations, as well as those that were against the trials to begin with. There's a passage here from a book, The Societal History of Crime and Punishment in America. So here's the passage. A number of historians have speculated as to why the witch hunts occurred and why certain people were singled out. Those proposed reasons have included personal vendettas, fear of strong women, and economic competition. Regardless, the Salem witch trials are a memorial and a warning to what hysteria, religious intolerance, and ignorance can cause in the criminal justice system. So, I'm just going to leave that right there. Let that stew for a minute. Think about that. Hmm. If any of those words were relatable, please just take a minute to reflect. Also, sidebar, that book sounds really interesting and I may or may not have to order it and read it. I don't read off of Kindle or my phone or anything like that. I enjoy having the actual physical book in front of me, so that's going to be a book on my bookshelf. So many people were accused. We mentioned this earlier. The number sits around about 150 to 200. Not everyone was arrested or pursued by authorities, but around 150 people were arrested. Those doing the arresting were pretty freaking busy. Like, knock, knock, you're arrested. Knock, knock, you're arrested. Um, I'm sure that the jail was extremely overcrowded and disgusting, too. But, yeah, there's that. There's a giant list on historyofmassachusetts.org. If you want to go read it yourself, there are some names, and they also provide links to learn more about that person that's being mentioned. I did want to talk about a few that I read about. No matter how small, it gives the victims a voice, even for just a second. And so I did do a little bit here where I can list off some of names and ages of those victims. So I am going to give this a second to talk about... A few of them. I think I wrote down three that I want to mention. Susanna Martin, age 71. She was a poor widow living in Amsbury at Amsbury at the time of the witch trials. She'd been accused of infanticide, infanticide, which is killing a child or your own child within the first year of life and tormenting people. She's also accused of tormenting people. The charges being dismissed she was then accused by the afflicted girls, brought to trial June 29th, executed July 19th, 1692. Rebecca Nurse, age 71. She was an elderly grandmother from Salem Village and the wife of farmer Francis Nurse. 
She had a long-standing feud with the Putnam family over border boundaries. She was also dis- disapproved of Sa- she also disapproved of Samuel Paris, a close family friend of the Putnams and of course the new minister. She originally found not guilty and then the afflicted girls testified and the jury came back with a guilty verdict. She was executed July 19th, 1692. Martha Corner, age 33. She lived in Andover and was the wife of Thomas Corner. She was the niece of outspoken opponent of the Salem witch trials, Reverend Francis Dane of Andover, and the sister of accused witch, witch Mary Toothaker of Billerica. She was the first in Andover accused by her neighbor, Benjamin Abbott, over a land dispute. Abbott then falls ill and accuses Martha her children coerced, her children were then coerced into testifying against her. She was brought to trial August 5th and was executed August 19th, 1692. It would really take a while for me to go over the whole list. So I just mentioned the three, but I really, 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 really think that you should go to the website historymassachusetts.org and read it for yourself because some of the the people arrested and the stories of why they were arrested were pretty outlandish and just insane. So please do. Please visit the website. I encourage it. I do want to call attention to how intertwined the families were and how one family's influence had a huge part in the witch trials. I did read about John Willard, a deputy constable actually quit his job due to becoming uncomfortable arresting so many people and the reasons why they were being arrested. He's one of the first to speak out against the witch trials, and this, of course, drew attention to him. After fleeing, he was hunted down with two arrest warrants regarding a beating and killing of his suspected victims. And Putnam Jr. Putnam. The last name Putnam. Think about it claimed she could see the ghost of his victims. There's the last name again. Putnam, like I said. He was brought to trial against August 5th and executed August 19th, 1692. So now we get to talk about where the accused were imprisoned and it just paints the picture even further. Again, like I said, it's weird just sitting here talking to myself, not really having anybody to talk to. So I do repeat myself. And also, I'm very new to this podcasting, so I'm really sorry if I go, um, eh, eh, or long pauses. Because I'm reading notes, so bear with me. Due to the amount of people accused, there were several jails in Salem. Ipswich and Boston. According to the book, A Delusion of Satan, the full story of the Salem Witch Trials, the accused were considered dangerous prisoners and were kept in dungeons underneath the jails away from regular prisoners. Here's a quote from the book. Yeah, no, paint in that picture. <laughs> As the most dangerous inmates, the witches were kept in the dungeons. They were pe- perpetually dark, bitterly cold, and so damp that water ran down the walls. They reeked of unwashed human bodies and excrement. Lovely. Lovely. That's great. It's a great place to finish off your life. It is said that those that managed to escape the gallows and leave the prisons were forever changed from being there. There is a little case 
It's like a little blurb that I read about a four-year-old girl who was imprisoned for about eight months. After being released to her father, he states that she became very chargeable. Don't know what that really meant. Air quotations, chargeable. Meaning, possibly meaning, that she was a financial burden. He then hired a keeper to take care of her. I'm not sure what she displayed in attitude or the way that she acted, but I'm safely assuming it was because she had, like, PTSD. Um, she was four. She had to be in a prison cell with God knows how many people. I... <laughs> these people, I'm sure, didn't give a crap about a four-year-old little girl hanging out in this prison cell. I'm pretty sure things happened, and this poor girl was just reacting to the life she had to live for eight months. Eight months is a very long time to experience something like that, let alone a lifetime. But at four years old? Hmm. These dungeons, however, were discovered in the 1950s on St. Peter Street when the site was ex excavated to build the New England Telephone Company. So imagine coming across something like that. I don't know if I would stick around to kind of see what's going on or if I'd run. I'd probably stick around, but I probably wouldn't like venture too far. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. That would be really weird. I don't know. It'd be exciting and weird at the same time. <laughs> While in prison, the accused were humiliated by being forced to undergo physical examinations of their bodies. They were looking for physical evidence such as the devil's mark or a teat from which the witch's familiar nurse from. They were forced to strip naked in front of a group of people to be poked and prodded. They were looking for any of those suspicious marks, and then if they found them, they were pricked with a needle. The female prisoner's breasts were examined several times a day for signs of lactation or breastfeeding. The appearance of their breasts was recorded and discussed in the courtroom. So again, like I said, that four-year-old, that her dad just ended up dismissing having somebody else take care of her. Like, imagine what she was going through. If she was, I did read that she was the daughter of an accused, but to end up in the jail, the prison for eight months, something was going on there. So maybe they thought she was a part of it too. But imagine being subjected to that at four years old. That's insane. I, that's crazy. The executions took place on a small hill, Proctor's Ledge, at the base of Gallows Hill in Salem Town. The victims were hanged by the neck from a tree. They weren't burned at the stake. They weren't. Like, you see movies, Salem Witch Trials, or Witch Trials, or whatever, and they're being burned at the stake. That actually did not happen. One of the reasons why burning at the stake was not used was because the English didn't see it as a suitable death for women because it involved nudity. However, they did use burning at the stake for men who committed high treason and only after they've been hanged and almost dead. It's mentioned that burning at the stake was a popular was popular in countries with a strong Catholic background because it ensured that the victim would not have a body to take with them to the afterlife. It's also speculated that burning at the stake myth comes from a, the 50,000 accused during the European witch hunts for malevolent witchcraft. Some were burned alive while others were hanged and beheaded and later incinerated to prevent any possibility of postpartum, postmartum, duh, Melissa, postmartum black magic. 
After being executed as a witch or someone practicing witchcraft, you weren't granted a burial. You were buried in a shallow grave or tossed into a rock crevice near the execution site on Gallows Hill. Victims Rebecca Nurse, John Proctor, and George Jacobs were reportedly retrieved by their family members to be buried on their family property. There's no telling what happened to the unclaimed. I'm just going to let you assume whatever you want to assume. Or maybe do your own research and find out what happened, but think about that for just a little bit. After all hell breaks loose, for lack of a better term, the people of Salem begin to feel guilty. Hmm. (laughs) Or ashamed for what took place. They still believed in witches and the devil, but were starting to doubt that so many people could have been the cause of what they were being accused for. And some began to realize that the most of the accused were most likely innocent. When droughts, crop failures, smallpox outbreaks and attacks from tribes began to happen, like after the Salem witch trials, um, the people of Salem began to fear that they had angered God and that they need to seek forgiveness. They were now in the state of trying to appease God for what they had done. On December 17th, Governor Stoughton uh, issued a proclamation in hopes of making amends. It talks about a day of prayer being observed with fasting. This day was meant to humble the colony and in, in a way asking for forgiveness they were seeking from the errors that were made in the act of judgment. The Day of Prayer was held on January 15, 1697, also known as the Day of Official Humiliation. After all that happened, so I believe I did read that the witch trials were about, if I remember the years that I read, it was like it took place over the span of like a year, year and a half. However, obviously people still imprisoned, but the actual... Um, hanging and um, executions of those that were found guilty all of all of it took about a year I just so everybody starts to calm down and go wait what are we doing I, I honestly what I don't I don't know I don't know what could be possibly going through people's minds back then couldn't tell you it's just it blows my mind that they were like, hmm, ee, that was bad. We probably shouldn't have done that. That probably was not a good idea. Oh, my God. Smallpox and droughts. God is mad at us. We feel guilty for murdering all these people and throwing these people in jail. <sighs> Anyways. <laughs> oh, so, moving on. The surviving convicted witches and their families urged the colony to clear some of the names of the convicted. So a proclamation was released that there's going to be an observance day for those that were murdered, those that fell victim to the witch trials, and now their families are going, well, if that's happening, then you need to clear some of the names of our family members because this is bullshit. I mean, they probably didn't say that, but they thought bullshit. A bill was passed... So going forward, way forward, a bill was passed in October, on October 17th, 1711. Not every name was listed because family, by request of family, they didn't really want to be embarrassed. However, they did get the clearance or whatever they wanted from it. Uh, They did get it. Like the name, the names were included, but not listed. 
The bill lists the names of those that were okay with it, like I said. And it goes on to say, so get this. Okay. It goes on to say that any judgment towards the accused be reversed null and void. Those that brought forward the judgments were protected by any form of prosecution for their part in the trials. So not only is it clearing names, but it's also clearing the names of those that were the ones that arrested, did the punishing, did the torture, did all the stuff, did the hanging. They're like, nope, you're all so clear. Uh, anyways, the victims of the families were also awarded a restitution of like $600, which was divided among them of the surviving. Back in the 1700s, that was a pretty good sum of money. These days, however, that wouldn't even cover rent. That's insane. $600. Here's $600. Sorry for murdering your uncle. <laughs> October 31st, 2001, the official apology was amended and more names were added to the list. So they're still adding names to the list. I'm sure the descendants of the victims of the Salem witch trials or actually the descendants of the people who took part in the Salem witch trials all have a very deep connection and I mean, it th that's insane. It's just crazy. I wish I could have dove so much deeper into this. I wish there was more research I could do. I'm sure there is. But I don't know. It's just, it's a lot. There's a lot of craziness. So you kind of need to do your own research on it. I encourage you to. I am going to buy one of the books though and read it. Because I think that would be a lot of fun to read about all the craziness <laughs> the cause of the hysteria so okay we're gonna talk about some of the myths that were mentioned it's it, it's an it gets pretty interesting when you talk about that kind of stuff the cause of the hysteria also has like several speculations like i was saying so possible consumption of poisoned rye bread However, it all started and ended about a year after, and Salem will always remember what took place in the 1600s. So, the cause of poisoned rye bread, let's think about that. 1600s um, could have been something that poisoned, some kind of poisoning, could have been some kind of drug, it could have been just like... The historian thought some mass hysteria, um, mob mentality, once one's targeted, all of them are. Uh, when I was reading about all the other victims, it did mention that some of them were like, oh, they were, they were accused of witchcraft because their neighbor fell ill because of a, a dispute between the families or... Uh, Another member of the family died, the droughts, anything that they could think that they were just mad. Or, like, she's young and in poverty, living on the streets. She she could possibly be a witch. Let's accuse her. Like, it was, in, it was a lot of finger pointing. A lot of finger pointing, which makes it crazy. Even crazier. I think it's awesome that they keep amending the apology when they discover more names. You can also visit Salem and do a walking guided tour of the specific locations, which I think would really be fun to do. 
where the trials were held in Gallows Hill, I think it would be a really fun trip. I really do. I think I'm I think I'm gonna order some of the books like I had stated before because reading more about it and learning more about history, this is a huge part of history. And it's not talked about. So I will order some of the books and tell you what I thought of them. That's the end of this episode for the Salem Witch Trials. I don't really have any more to share. I kind of summed up a lot of my research that I did. Um, but yeah, look forward to part two of Leah Roberts coming up. The disappearance of Leah Roberts. Tara and I are going to dig a little bit more into what happened, what could have happened. And I can't wait. Thank you again for listening to A Tale as Old as Crime. And keep coming back, please.